Morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we are the recipients of great promises, and we have received answers to those promises, fulfillment of those promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the fullness of those promises are outstanding in that the Lord Jesus Christ has not returned for us. And so we have in this life to endure and to to wait for His return. And we, we enjoy praising You, we read the Bible, we we stir one another up to love and good works, and we wait, and we wait. And as we wait, there is a battle over our faith. And we pray, Father, that as that battle rages, that you would fight for us and that you would move us to fight, that we would fight to believe, and that we would do so by continuing continuing all the time to look to the Lord Jesus, believing that, that He holds us in His hands, that He is the one who will bring us into glory, that we would affirm to you and to one another and to ourselves that we would rather have Jesus than anything in this world, that we would fight by reminding ourselves of the cross and its sufficiency to cover our sins, that we would fight by reminding ourselves that the tomb is empty. We would fight by listening to your preached word calling us to fight. We pray that on this day you would use your appointed means to move us to remain in the faith and cross the finish line and enjoy eternity with you. May your Holy Spirit have his way in us through your word on this day. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. This morning will be another overview sermon, which in a sense will be like a sprint through chapters 3 and 4. And so we're, we're doing this just to remind you if, if you, if you were not here the first time we, we did this, we're, we're doing overview sermons over sections. So we're covering sections, a, a section extending from 3.1 to 4.16, and the purpose of doing this is 
to get a feel for the flow of the argument of this whole section so that we're not missing the forest for the trees. And then we'll go back and we'll take a look at smaller passages within the section so that we don't miss the trees for the forest. And since we will read the entirety of this passage as we make our way through it this morning, we're going to begin just by reading verses 12 through 14. So if you found your way to Hebrews 3, please stand with me and we'll read those three verses. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You may be seated. The Israelites were at the wilderness of Paran. They were standing on the virtual precipice of entering paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey. God had sent Moses to lead them out from under the burdens of of the Egyptians. And in that great redemption, God had showed His power to them in many different ways. Over and over through the plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, through His provision of food from heaven, water from a rock, through His defeating the Amalekites in battle. And so they had seen plenty to trust that God would now deliver into their hands the land that He was commanding them to take. They had only to spy out the land and enter it. But entering would require them to trust God. And so, twelve men entered the land to take a look. And they brought back fruit from the land, confirming that it was good. It was a good land. But ten of the twelve testified, We are not able to go up against the people because they are stronger than us. Two of the twelve brought good news, saying, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the people rejected that good news and said to one another, Let us appoint a leader. And let us go back to Egypt. So, though they were brought out of Egypt, they died in the wilderness, never entering the land for lack of faith. It's a familiar story, but it may be closer to you than you even recognize. Because there is a war being waged against your soul as you seek to enter the land. 1 Peter 2.11 teaches that the passions of your own flesh wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 5.8 says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And those enemies' objective is to destroy your faith in Christ and therefore prevent you from entering the land. 
For it is those of faith who enter the land. And for that reason, the New Testament authors give warnings and exhortations like Paul's in 1 Corinthians 10-12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this section of Hebrews gives instruction about how to endure that battle and enter glory. And the bottom line is this. Keep your eyes on Jesus and trust Him. Now, um, among us this morning, we may be facing any number of tests of faith and obedience. Maybe you're tempted to walk away from a marriage where there is no biblical warrant to do so. Or you're being pressured to bend on a biblical issue in order to preserve a relationship, familial or otherwise. Or, or you're developing a secret habit against which your conscience is raging. Whatever the situation, you're in a position to follow Christ or not. Trust Him or not. Obey or not. And this crossroads, it may not be absolutely determinative about your eternity. It may be a smaller episode in a larger storyline. But keep in mind that these smaller episodes either result in strengthened faith in Christ or deepened hardening against Christ. And none of us can afford the latter. And so this section of Hebrews is for everyone in this room. Don't harden your hearts since you have such a great apostle and high priest leading you into the promised land. If you would enter God's rest, beware of possible rebellion in your heart and strive for obedient faith by focusing your life on the one who has been sent to bring you into glory, Jesus Christ. Now to that end, this text offers little breadcrumbs leading us endurance. And the first of those is this, consider carefully Jesus' superior ability to deliver you into God's rest. Consider carefully Jesus' superior ability to deliver you into God's rest. Let's begin reading at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, big picture, the author is doing something in this section quite similar to the previous section that we studied, chapters 1 and 2. He's comparing and contrasting Jesus with a figure associated with the old covenant for the purpose of moving the recipients to cling to Jesus. Now, in this section, chapters 3 and 4, that old covenant figure is Moses. The author refers to Jesus here as, as an apostle or a sent one. 
an apostle and a high priest of our confession. And those are both words, apostle and high priest, those are, those are terms used of Moses in the Old Covenant, I'm sorry, the Old Testament and in intertestamental literature. Moses was a sent one. He was an apostle in the sense that God sent him into Egypt, into Egypt to get God's people. And he was a priest in the sense that he was chosen to bring God's people into the promised land, into fellowship with God. Jesus does the same thing, but on a grander, more ultimate scale. Jesus descends from heaven into a fallen creation to redeem sinners from sin and death, not just Egypt, and He brings them to glory to be with God forevermore. Now, here in verses 1 through 6, there's no mention of God's rest or coming into glory or, or the promised land, but all of that is implied by these two phrases or words, apostle and high priest. A sent one high priest does that, goes and brings God's people into God's rest. And by everything that the author does in these verses, without demeaning Moses in any way, the author shows Jesus to be the superior sent one high priest. As much as a builder of a house is greater than the house, Jesus is greater than Moses. As much as a son is greater than a servant, so is Jesus greater than Moses. And the very first verb in the section is an imperative Consider, meaning contemplate, think deeply about Jesus compared to Moses. And, and remember the historical sympathies of these original recipients. Moses is like Elvis to these people. He's bigger than Elvis. And he is it. He's the guy to the Jews, right? Now, while the author doesn't mention it here, eventually the author starts talking about Joshua which is, is kind of subtle, but why would he start talking about Joshua? Is it because Moses died of old age? Did Moses turn 65 and retire? No, this is a subtle way of reminding the people that Moses failed. He failed morally, and so he did not bring the people into the land, and he was replaced by Joshua. And so just the mention of Joshua later in the section is a reminder that, that Moses was an imperfect, sent one high priest. Jesus is a superior sent one high priest. He gets you there. And the author assumes that we haven't forgotten all that stuff that he taught us back in chapters 1 and 2, including that Jesus, Jesus is, a, is, is the condescending God-man representative brother who tasted death for us, rose from the dead, now reigns over all in glory and ministers to us from there that we might endure until the end and join Him in glory. He's assuming that we're remembering all of that. Jesus actually gets us there. He's paved the way and from His throne He ministers to us to help us endure and make it down the road that He's already paved. Now there's this swing clause in verse 6. Playing on this house metaphor, the author says, We are Jesus' house if indeed we hold our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, that's just another way of saying that we are members of Jesus' body if we continue to believe. And that's exactly why he begins the section with the exhortation to con 
to consider carefully the superior ability of Jesus to deliver you to God's rest. The, the overall picture of this, of this section, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is not an exhortation to muscle your way into heaven, but rather feed your faith by looking to the object of that faith, Jesus Christ. Feed your faith. Feed your faith. And one way to do that is compare Jesus to everybody that came before Him, including the rock star that came before Him. Compare Him to Moses and see how much better He is than Moses. He gets you there. Feed your faith on Christ. For we are His house if we hold fast to Christ and no one else. Hold fast to Jesus. The second step on our way to, to clinging to Jesus that we might endure is be on guard then against unbelief. If, if, we, if, we, if we must cling to Jesus, then we want to be on guard against unbelief and exhort one another to faithfulness. Be on guard against unbelief and exhort one another to faithfulness. And we want to pick up reading in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and, and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this is a quotation that comes from Psalm 95 which Pastor Michael read for us this morning, or the first part of which Pastor Michael read for us this morning. He didn't continue into, into this part. But essentially, the psalmist, the psalmist speaking to his own generation, and, and, and the author of Hebrews is going to reveal to us later that David wrote this psalm. So David, appealing to his own contemporaries, is pointing back to the, to the wilderness generation, and he's saying to, to his generation, hey, hey, everybody that's living in my time, don't be like them. Don't be like the wilderness generation. They saw all the works of God. They had all the revelation that anybody could hope for, and yet they still rebelled. They did not believe. They did not trust God. And due to that rebellion, God said to them, they will not enter my rest. The people refused to trust the Lord in taking the land. Everyone except those two spies, Joshua and Caleb. And so God said, you're all going to die in the wilderness. You can read about all that in Numbers 13 and 14. Well, now the author of Hebrews is taking David's words to his generation. And the author of Hebrews is, is saying to the, the author of Hebrews' generation, don't you be like them. Okay, so he's just carrying the message all along. And he is saying this to his own generation, which is the church. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Just as the psalmist, just as the psalmist David has his antenna up, lest he and his contemporaries be like the wilderness generation, so the author of Hebrews is saying, you do the same. 
Keep an eye out for unbelief that leads to apostasy, toward, toward falling away from the faith. Do what the psalmist does. Exhort one another daily unto obedient faith. Be on guard against unbelief and against the deceitfulness of sin. Recognize this as an actual danger. Not the thing that happens to the other guy. This is is not that thing that that happens to that other person. We we, we need to grasp the fact and, and listen to the language. The author of Hebrews is writing this to believers. Saying, you be careful about this. You. Make sure that this isn't you. Not the the guy pretending to be a believer. He he would write completely differently if that was his his modus operandi. Don't take the approach that falling away is what happens to someone else. Why, Why is this such a crucial exhortation? Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. We, we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now he's saying there just what he said in verse 6. And note the language. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, the Paul of 1 Thessalonians could have written this verse. It's not about starting the race. It is about crossing the finish line. For we have come to share in Christ if we cross the finish line. And to illustrate, he returns to the example of that wilderness generation beginning in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Him with whom was He provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. His, his, his point is, look again at the wilderness generation. They started the race, but they hardened their hearts. They rebelled against God. They turned away. And so, they did not cross the finish line. They were not able to enter His rest because of unbelief. And in all this, the author seeks to stir us up to, to finish the race. We have better resources available to us. We, we have regenerate hearts. We have the very Spirit of Christ living inside of us to empower us. We have a better covenant. We have a far superior sent one high priest. We have all the more reason then to heed the words of Psalm 95 because we can heed the words of Psalm 95. We have all the more reason then to be confident when we read Psalm 95 Yes, I will cross that finish line because I'm going to heed these words. I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to cling to Jesus Christ. I'm going to cling to Jesus Christ. I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this warning seriously. And I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. And I'm going to be aware of the possibility of rebellion into my own heart. And I'm going to squelch that by, by being involved with other believers. I'm going to warn them and I'm going to invite them to warn me unto this thing of keeping my eyes on Jesus and crossing that finish line. It should be a priority of the highest order for us to do this very thing that he mentions here in verses 12 and 13. Be on guard and exhort one another daily. 
in, in, in what ways are we prioritizing that activity? I ask you to just consider that this morning. In what ways are you prioritizing that activity? Are we prioritizing it with the fervency commensurate with the way that he words verse 14? For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do we prioritize the kind of activity in verses 12 and 13 commensurate with the truth found in verse 14? Consider your calendar from the last week, the last, the last month, the last six months in terms of the amount of time that, 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 that you have spent exhorting others, being exhorted by others to love Jesus more, to pour yourself into other believers to the extent that you're stirring them up. Does your calendar reflect a conviction that Hebrews 3.14 is spoken to you? Because it is. There is no reason to believe it's written to someone else. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Therefore, we should beware lest we find disbelief in our hearts, and we should be careful to encourage one another daily while it is still called today. Third, to the end that we cross that finish line, we should strive to enter His rest by walking in obedient faith. We should strive to enter His rest by walking in obedient faith. For one, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As He said, I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands. His his point here is that like the wilderness generation coming out of Egypt, he's saying just like they they came out of Egypt and and they had not entered His rest yet, he's saying, saying, so too you also, you have not entered His rest. The, the, The promise of entering His rest, it still stands. Coming out of Egypt did not equal entering rest. The, the, the people had to continue trusting God until they crossed the finish line into the land. You too must continue in faith. You too must continue in faith. Now, what was the, the wilderness generation's problem? They heard the good news, but they were not united by faith with those who listened. But those who listened, and, and this is one of those cases where listen means obey, and it's likely referring to uh, Joshua and Caleb. They, they, they were not all with Joshua and Caleb trusting the Lord with that good report of the land. And so the, the vast majority of them rebelled. Therefore, as, as, as verse 2 words it, the message that they heard, meaning this is a good land and we should enter it, the message that they heard did not benefit them. They did not enter that good land. We will enter God's rest 
on the basis of belief. Not belief 20 years ago. Not, not belief at a point in time, but belief. Believers enter that rest. The implication is strive to enter that rest by continuing in belief. And the, the good news that we have heard is, is simple. We were separated from God by sin and rebellion. But Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and reconcile us to God. And upon His resurrection from the dead, He opened the way to eternal fellowship with God for everyone who repents and follows Him in faith. Believers are those who hear that and believe it. Present tense. We believe and we keep believing it because we've trusted Christ with everything He directs our lives. Now look at verse 4. For He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again in this passage, He, he said... They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But the big idea is that he's explaining how there is still a rest outstanding. There is an eternal rest for God's people patterned after the rest that God himself took upon his completion of creation. God rested on the seventh day, and that pictured an eternal rest that man would enjoy from his toil. But, but that rest was not simply the Canaan land that God promised to, to, to Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12. How do we know that? Because, because Joshua brought the people into that land in Canaan. And centuries later, David wrote a warning to God's people about being careful lest they miss out on entering God's rest. So, so evidently, God's people have not entered God's ultimate rest. The Canaan land was merely a picture of God's ultimate rest. And so the warning of, of Psalm 95 only becomes more pertinent as time goes by. It's even more pertinent for you and me than it was for David's contemporaries. Why? Because, because we are that much closer to God's rest than David was. Verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us Therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So let's notice something. Jump, up, jump back up to the last verse of chapter 3. Why were the people unable to enter? Hebrews 3.19. Why were they unable to enter? 3.19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, let's go down to 4.2. And, and ask ourselves the same question. Why were they unable to enter? 4-2. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. Those who listen. So the wilderness generation, they failed to enter because they did not believe. 
right? They had a faith problem, clearly. Now the middle of 4.6. Why did they not enter? 4.6. They failed to enter because of disobedience. And here again in 4.11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So, so which is it? Did, th- did they fail to enter because of unbelief or disobedience? Well, unless your Bible says something different than mine, mine says both. Does yours say both? Then it must be both, right? And, and, and so to, to phrase the question as an either-or is to make an imposition on the Bible, an illegitimate one. Now, if, if, if we didn't know anything about, about the context, the biblical context, the theological context, we might come to the conclusion that for the author of Hebrews, unbelief and disobedience are synonyms. We might think that. He, he uses them so tightly. We might think, they're synonyms for this guy. It's the same thing. It almost appears he's using them interchangeably. He's not, but it can kind of look that way. He's not using them interchangeably. They're different concepts, but they are closely related. They're very closely related. And so he is able to say, this is why they didn't enter. They didn't believe. This is why they didn't enter. They didn't obey. He's able to say both because they're so tightly connected. Remember the story. Let's think through this. Remember the story. The people didn't obey God. God commanded them to take the land. They refused. Why? And, and by the way, that refusal, what do we call that? We call that disobedience. God tells us to do something. We don't do it. That's called disobedience. Why didn't they? They didn't obey because they didn't believe. They, there were giants in the land and they did not trust God to keep His promise to give them the land that was occupied by those giants. Now, now I'm about to say one of those things that's worth writing down. It's not in your notes, but just a heads up. Unbelief is the birth mother of all sin. Unbelief is the birth mother of all sin. They didn't enter because they disobeyed. They disobeyed because they didn't trust. And so, they didn't enter because they didn't trust. They ultimately had a faith problem that led them to disobey God that, that prevented them from entering the land. Caleb and, Joshua, Caleb and Joshua, they were the sterling contrast to that group. They carried the good news of the land and they believed God. They trusted God. And so they were gung-ho. Let, let's get after it. Those giants are food for us. So that they were all about obeying because they were all about trusting God. God, God has got this. You guys remember the plagues? I mean, they, they had their eyes on who God was. And for that reason, they survived and entered the land. And so the author of Hebrews exhorts the reader to look at this Old Testament example and as a result, strive to enter God's rest by walking, that is, living in this kind of Caleb and Joshua, trusting in God that leads you to put one foot in front of the other, obeying God. Faith doesn't exist in an obedienceless world. It expresses itself in obedience. And so when we say, strive to enter that rest by walking in obedient faith, we're not saying, oh, well, I'm 
going to obey my way into heaven. Not at all. Rather, we're saying, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to trust Him alone. I'm not diverting to any alternate path. I'm believing that He alone is, is, is the perfect sent one high priest. That He has covered my sins and reconciled me to God. I'm following Him. I'm following Him with my thoughts, my obedience, the entire trajectory of my life. Whatever He says, that's it. That is what you call faith. And that's what you call obedience. You walk in obedient faith. And, and when Jesus is it for you, it is really, really hard to distinguish faith from obedience. It is really hard to tease those two out. And that's why it's hard for the author of Hebrews to tease these two out. Verse 12, he begins to give an additional motivation for all this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Have you ever tried to read that in context and kind of scratched your head like, now how does this flow? We, we, we tend to have a little bit of a hard time understanding how this fits with the context because generally we hear these, these couple of verses quoted as like this kind of generic expression of the power of God's Word. We almost never, we almost never hear it talked about in the flow of this, of this whole passage. It's just, it's just a generic statement about the power of the Scriptures. Here's how it fits with the context. The word for indicates that it's explaining something. It's explaining something about the preceding. It's likely answering the question why about what came before it. Why should you strive to enter that rest? Why? Why should you be zealous to avoid failing due to disobedience? And here's the answer that's expressed in verses 12 and 13. Because no one, no one, no one is going to pull a fast one on God. You are not going to hide unbelief disobedience from God. His Word sees everything. Everyone is naked before God. That is incentive to do everything that has, that has been brought before us in the verses that precede it. You are not going to be able to hide an unbelieving, rebellious heart from God. That's what verses 12 and 13 are telling us. So be serious about striving to make Jesus everything. Just keep your eyes on Him. You're not going to be able to fake your way into the kingdom by, by, by being a, a kind of surfacey Jesus person that doesn't actually trust Him, that doesn't actually obey Him. You've got to be actually about Him. You've got to keep your eyes on Him and trust Him. And so He comes back around to Jesus again. We come to our final point. Consider carefully Jesus' superior ability to deliver you into God's rest. Consider carefully Jesus' superior ability to deliver you into God's rest. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These three verses, in my view, are transitional. They're kind of like a hinge on a gate between this section and the next section, which is chapters 5 and, and, and further. But as transitional verses, they also function as something like bookends on this section. So in, in the very first section, uh, little, little part that we looked at this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 through, through 6, the author first mag, mag, maximizes Jesus and His ability to see us into glory. That, that was the first part. And then he spends the bulk of these two chapters pushing hard for obedient faith unto entrance into glory. And then second, second bookend, he turns our eyes once again to the object of that obedient faith by maximizing Jesus' ability to see us into glory. So we've, we, we've got object of faith, maximizing that object of faith. Trust, 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 trust. Make sure that there's no unbelief. Stir one another up to belief. Object of faith. So that we've got these bookends saying, hey, don't forget that this, this, this exhortation to faith in the middle is not an objectless faith. And it's, and it's not a muscle your way into glory kind of thing. It's all about Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. And He commends Him with the most wonderful language. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us with confidence draw near to Him. Don't, don't, don't with timidity by yourself try to tiptoe your way into glory or claw your way in your own strength. It's His strength. Look to Him. Go with confidence to Him in your moment of need. And when is your moment of need? It's all the time, right? All the time. We need to get rid of this notion that Jesus is something like a cosmic deadbeat dad. That He, he, he did the bare minimum necessary to give us spiritual life, but now He's gone. And we're on our own. And He's somewhere up in heaven resting His feet on His enemies while we've got real problems. That conception, if you, if you, if you suffer from that conception or what we, what we should call a, a misconception, if you suffer from that, that could easily lead to the kind of unbelief and rebellion characterized by that wilderness generation. Because we see giants around us all the time in various forms. And if we think we have no real sent one high priest available to us in any meaningful way, it may be easy to conclude, just like we did, we can't do this. I'm going to find another leader to take me back to Egypt. We must pay much closer attention to the things that we've heard, including that Jesus is no deadbeat dad kind of Savior. He's not even just a mosaic kind of Savior. He is far superior. He's God in the flesh, reigning on the throne. And from there, He ministers to me in every single way I could possibly need. He knows exactly what we've been through, what we're going through, what we're going to go through. And He sympathizes with those things, sympathizes with them, with our sufferings. He's gone down that road and He's done it sinlessly. He's available to help us. You want to enter that rest? You want to enter that rest? You want to survive the test of faith that you're enduring right now? A test of faith that, which, which may seem utterly unique to you. This passage says it's not unique to you. 
You want to survive that test of faith? Whatever it is, look to Jesus. Beware of traces of, of rebellious unbelief in your heart. Exhort others to remain faithful. Surround yourself with, with others who will do that same thing for you. Lock arms together, pointing all your eyes collectively to Jesus and strive to enter that rest by pursuing obedient faith, keeping your eyes where they belong on Him. Him who has gone before and is sufficient to see you through the troubles of this life. I ask you to consider as we, as we pray and as we observe a moment of reflection here in the, in the next few minutes, what specifically would the Holy Spirit require of you at the crossroads where you find yourself? The Israelites were, were, were in the wilderness of Paran. They were about to enter and take the land. They perhaps did not understand the significance of the decision that they were about to make. They perhaps did not understand the significance of staring at giants instead of at all the things that God had done for them. Had they to do it over again, what might they have done differently? What specifically would the Holy Spirit have you to do given where you are standing this morning? How specifically would He have you to focus your life on Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we affirm your word that you have from eternity past set your affections on certain ones and that you will see your children to glory, that you will preserve your saints in the faith. We, we affirm those things and we recognize that these strong exhortations are means that you use to exhort us to remain in the faith. We recognize also that you can use these same exhortations to bring the unbelieving to faith. And we pray that you would have your way in every life in this room in one of those two ways, that among those who know the Lord Jesus, that you would Stir us up to keep our eyes on Jesus. To continue trusting Him until we cross that finish line of glory. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus, but who still remain in their sins. That you would move them in light of the truth that they've heard to repent of their sin. Trust in Jesus and begin following Him today. Till they cross the bar or Jesus returns. We need your help in all these things and we ask for them in Jesus' name. Amen.